Bible with you this morning, or a phone, some device you'll be looking at the text, will be in Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 4. We've been in Ecclesiastes now for the last several weeks. Um, if you haven't spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes, um, you would join the party, right? Most people, it's not a book they've spent a ton of time in. Most don't have um, a lot of devotional time in, in this book. It's, it's, it's a strange book. It's, it's a book of wisdom a type of literature, a genre that we don't do a lot in modern society. Um, but it's also a very frank book. And so as we've been observing it and looking at it, we're reminded that it's being written from the perspective of what can we know, what can we understand under heaven, right? Like under the sun. And, and the, the, the author keeps saying everything that we chase is like smoke, right? Like we can see it and we want to grasp it, and when we get close to it, we can't quite grab it, but we see it, and so we keep chasing it. And so he's laid out and observed all these different things in life that don't ultimately satisfy. And so ultimately what's going to happen is we spend these weeks through Ecclesiastes, is Ecclesiastes is going to reveal in us that nothing matters and that all is smoke, that all is vapor, or that everything actually has meaning and value. I mean, it's going to be one or the other. And so it's, it's, it's a book because of its, its kind of uh, harsh nature, right, that a lot of us just don't run to. And so we thought it appropriate, um, even if a little bit strange, to spend the Christmas Advent season and the New Year, which are often spent kind of trying to fool ourselves into something shiny and looking at new things and fresh things to, to see that stark contrast that Scripture actually brings us to that there are two twin truths, that there are real joys and real things to, to savor and to have in this life, and this world is full of brokenness and heartache and tragedy, and death is inevitable for all of us. And, and so many of us lean and run one way or the other, right? We, we, we run to nothing is serious, that everything's fun and a joy, and yet that's not true. And others can kind of become pessimistic and run towards nothing matters. And Ecclesiastes is going to say, hey, we, first let's agree that they're both there. And as they're both there, as we wed them together, how do we walk in a way that honors and pleases the Lord in that? I feel like even this weekend has been an example of that for us. Um, that as we look at the start of a new year, which it typically has a lot of freshness and newness and enthusiasm and excitement. If you're a calendar person, right, you're pulling out a new calendar and a new day planner and there's nothing been marked out yet and all these like, just like enjoyable things, right? I, I've always loved just the freshness of this time of year, right? And so that's, that's there. And yet there's a dampening on that because of COVID, right? And just the fact that for the last couple of years, it's like, like where, where are we at with this, right? It doesn't feel like we can be quite as... Um, exuberant. And then to have lost someone that we know and love here at Redeemer this weekend, um, I have a former student of mine who's 30 years old who lost his bride um, Friday um, at Tragic. And, and, and so you're, you're just reminded that, and there are some twin truths. And so yesterday I left the hospital and I went home and one of my kids needed to eat. And I was Telling Jacqueline just before the service, like what a strange juxtaposition it is, right? To, to be both at death's doorstep 
and to be feeding my kid in the vitality and life that's currently in my home. Right? Like that, that, that is a microcosm of Ecclesiastes. That that's why he writes the poem. There's a time, right? There's a time and a season for all of these things in life. And so we can either embrace um, the times and the seasons of life and, and trust that, that God is good and is in control, or we will feel like we are on a violent ride that we just desperately want to get off of. And so this morning, we, we don't um, mean to be a downer, right? But we want to be honest about the reality of life under the sun um, and the need and the hope um, and the longing that we have for things eternal and the things of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to finish chapter 4 and enter chapter 5 as the observer is going to write of two more things that he sees. And so let's pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now listen, we're going to stop there for a moment. Even just the language of the way this is kind of written is, can feel like I'm not sure how to grasp it. Right? That it's meant to be both an observation but also poetic, that it should stir something in us. And just as the, the author of Ecclesiastes has said, listen, you can work really hard and you're still going to die, right? You can, you can have all the pleasure in the world and you're still going to die. You can be really wise and then hand it off to a fool because you're going to die and someone else is going to enjoy what you've had. With, with money, with art, with all of these things, he now gets into power and, and legacy and politics specifically. And he contrasts two people here in, in really three distinct ways, he says, we have this young man uh, um, contrasted with the old king. We have a young man, right, who's wise. And so we should note that the current king is a fool, right, which is, is a strange and a sad state. And that the, the young man who is wise is poor. We have a rich king who's a fool. And so he's showing us just two different kinds of leaders, right, that sometimes we have bad leaders. Sometimes we have good leaders. And he's like, and as we see these two, the young one is coming to take the throne, right? He's going to replace this old and foolish king. It's a, it's a beautiful story, right? Of one who's been his began in poverty and in prison, right? It's almost Joseph-esque as you think of Joseph in Genesis, right? As one coming for the throne, and that lots of people are going to see him, know him, and follow him, and yet he's forgotten. He's not rejoiced in. And he's not going to be celebrated for long, right? We, we see this. There was no end of all the people, in verse 16, of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and striving after the wind. And so he sets us up with, okay, the, the bad king is being replaced by a good king with this like um, successful, beautiful story. This is awesome. Oh, and yet even and the success that the good king has, and all the people that he leads, and all those who follow him, and all those who are grateful for him as king, he too will die, and he will be forgotten. And, and, and so it quickly, 
right? It's dashed again. What the author of Ecclesiastes has told us over and over again is there is advantage, there is benefit to wisdom, but it doesn't keep us from death. And so there is advantage to a good leader over a bad leader, right? There is success, but he couldn't guarantee what would come after him. And so listen, there is something in all of us that longs to be remembered, right? That longs to be known and not forgotten, right? Some of us, this begins even at a very young age because we just, we see the brevity and the fragility of life. So for myself, I can remember being in elementary school and desperately wanting to be known, not necessarily by my peers in like second grade, but knowing like whatever trajectory I'm, I'm going to be on for life, I got to be the best at it. Like I've got to be incredible because it's like I knew innately I'm going to die. And, and what, is this, what does this life matter? What value is it if you're forgotten? Was, was just kind of what was rolling through my, my very young heart and mind, right? Maybe not a typical thought of a kid, um, but it would keep me up at night. And, and so it's like, okay, if I'm going to be an athlete, if I'm going to be a baseball player, I have to be a Hall of Famer. Like, if you're not going to be the best, like, why do it? If I'm going to be a doctor, then I need to cure cancer, right? Like, I've got to be not just a doctor who helps people. I need to be remembered as being tremendous, as being great. And so as I would think about college decisions or major decisions or job decisions or even just how I attempted to navigate through high school and college, it was all built around, I have to be known. I have to be remembered. I have to do something great. I have to do something that will not be forgotten because I'm going to die. And... And there was, right, like, it was crippling. Like, that, there's a weight that you're not supposed to carry there. And so there's a health in knowing that there's a brevity to life. But if you then believe it's in your hands to be remembered, really crushing. And so maybe for you it looks a little different. Maybe it looks like um, around the holidays there are specific traditions and stories that have to be told. Right, because you're trying to keep your grandmother or your great-grandmother alive for a new generation. And, but really what part of that is, is not just keeping them alive, it's in the hopes that one day your stories will also be told right, to keep you alive. And maybe, maybe you're not as morbid as I am right, in, in thinking about it that way, but right, there's just something that kind of drives you to it. And so it's in um, antiques that are handed down right, with stories attached. It's in, it's in recipes. Um, it's, it's, in, um, it's in pictures. It's in doing ancestry, right? That you can trace your family so many generations back because you want that story to continue to be told. Right? None of these are bad things, right? But that maybe it's in that you're looking to make a name for yourself through fame or power or money or legacy to have something named after yourself, right? So that people can come back and look at it. We want to be talked about. We want to be remembered. You'll often even see folks who have committed heinous crimes in the newspaper who will say things like, well, listen, I wanted to be talked about. Bad press is better than no press. And so if they remember me as a horrible serial killer, at least they remember me. Right? Like it, it can drive people in multiple directions, not just in good and healthy ways, but in horrific ways as well. Because the one thing that we can agree with with Ecclesiastes is this, is that we do know that death is inevitable 
and yet God has put eternity in our heart. Like we long for eternal things. And so it's going to be, um, should be obvious to us that what he's going to do now is he's going to observe religion. He's going to do it briefly here. He'll do it in, in more detail later. But let's pick up in chapter 5. As we um, have this no-named king that has been forgotten, although he was a good king. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they're do, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you to sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And so because he is observing, um, and because his, really his goal here is to kind of is to tear down all the establishments, right? It feels like the culture we're living in. He's trying to tear everything down to get to the root and the heart of what's going on. He now goes to church, right? He goes to religion. And we can see um, the pain in his observation here. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are, you are on earth. Right? We see the author here just saying, God's distant. He's not close, he's far, right? And, and so we begin to just see, again, kind of his pessimistic nature here. That God's not where he's supposed to be, he's too far away. And then he, he goes to fear, right? A topic that religion um, has, has been known for for generations. So we see it in verse 1. Um, guard your steps, right? For, they, it, for when you go to the house of God, like, be careful, Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. In verse um, 6, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Right. So he is fostering here, what he is observing is distance and fear. Is what he sees when it comes to pursuing God in religion. And then he'll continue and say there's vanity in appearing religious. And he's going to give two ways that there's vanity in being religious. The first is in verses 2 and 3, when you offer too many words. So he says, Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. He continues it in verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Right? Like, What's he saying here? Why is he talking about too many words? He's talking about someone who's going to go in in a religious setting and, and they're just going to talk a lot. Right? I know there's some ironic nature to that at the moment. Okay? Um, but he's going to say, you can appear to be in the know with your language and your words and be far from God. Right? That you can make other people believe that you are spiritual and that you are religious and that you know things, and the way that you pray makes them not want to pray, and the way that you talk makes them not want to engage you, 
in conversation. And in doing this, you're actually gaining nothing because God is not impressed by the abundance of your words. And yet, we know others are. And so sometimes we're not really worried about God. We're worried about the impression and the approval of others. And so he's saying, listen, let your words be few. We see this scene painted for us in in the New Testament as well. This is Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Right? Very religious. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? Like this reminder here that like we can come in and we can put on a show and we can do it in a religious setting and yet it oppresses God not one iota. Not, a, not at all. He's not clamoring for that. He's not asking for that. Right? A prayer can be as simple as help when you're turning to Him. Right? He's not going, man, we prayed for 37 minutes. How do I not answer your prayer now? Right? He's not... His arm is not twisted by many words. He continues. It's not just that we can appear religious in our words. We can also appear religious in our vows. Look at verses 4 and 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Now listen, a vow um, in the Old Testament was an optional thing. You're not required to make a vow. A vow was basically you saying, God, if you answer my prayer in, in this way, here's what I'll do. Right? You're, it's a bargain. Right? It's probably the language we would use now more than a vow. And it was saying, okay, God, if you'll do this, I'll sacrifice this. Or I'll, if you do this, I'll pray this long. Or if you do this, I'll give you my kid. Or if you, like, it's, it's making an optional promise that God has not asked you to make. So again, the scene here is someone who is emotional and they're saying rash things, right? They're getting caught up in the emotion of the service or things that are going on and they want to appear holy and righteous and maybe it's done in ignorance or maybe it's done um, completely knowing that it gains them some credit. But they begin to say things like, all right, well, I'm going to start reading my Bible um, for four hours a day, right? Instead of just going and reading their Bible. Right? They want you all to know how holy and pious they are. Right? Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start giving this percentage of my money. Or I'm going to start... And, and they, they make a vow before God, but really it's for you. Really it's for you. And then they don't keep it. He's like, what, like, what are you doing? Like, what do you think you're gaining here by making a promise? Like, do you not understand that God sees it and He hears it? and he doesn't suffer fools, right? He's warning them. Many words and many vows will not gain you anything before God, 
And so if you're using them before man, you've gained what you're going to gain. Right? Jesus will tell us in Matthew 6, let your yes be yes. Like he's like, don't make vows before God. Don't do it. Just let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be who you are. Say, say it, and do it. You don't need to impress others with it. He'll tell us in Matthew 5, right? Or it, it, that are in the abundance of our words, right? Like we're, we can babble in prayers thinking that we're being heard more. He's like, you're, you're not. But here's how you pray. He gives us the Lord's Prayer. So, it can feel here that the, that the author of Ecclesiastes is just kind of like mocking religion and mocking any sort of thing that's holy or sacred. But there's actually some things here that we can learn and glean from from what he's showing us. And the first is this. God is big. Right? Like the sense you get from these seven verses here is just that he's, he's seeing a perspective that God is in heaven and we're not. Like God is big and I'm not. That God is other and I'm not. Like that's, that's kind of the feel that you should get as you read that. And we should feel that. It is a healthy perspective to have. God is big. And He is other than. And He is better. We are not simply a close but not quite there version of Him. Listen to just a couple of verses here. This is Job chapter 27, another wisdom book, beginning in verse 7. I'm sorry, chapter 26, verse 7. Speaking of God, He stretches out the north over the void, and He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in His thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads it over its cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded, astounded at his rebuke. But his, by his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Right again, this poetic just saying, He's big. And He's great. And He's other than. Don't forget it. We see it again. This is Psalm 98. Um, beginning here in verse uh, 7. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So it's saying like, hey, creation, celebrate your Maker. Because like, He's coming to judge and He's going to judge rightly and fairly and it will be just. We see this in the beginning of Psalm 98. The reason we celebrate, the reason creation will celebrate, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For He's done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation he has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. So He is just painting this huge picture saying, see Him. He is glorious. And Ecclesiastes 5, even in its pessimism, 
It's helping us see God is not us. He's big. And He's glorious. And we should see this. However, we fight it. We fight against this. We, we buck against this. It's, a, it's like a natural um, inclination of ours, right? We think more highly of ourselves, right? And it's because we think of ourselves more. We just think of ourselves more. And because we're thinking of ourselves, we're elevating ourselves and we're lowering God. And you're not intentionally going, how can I bring God down a notch today? Like, you're not, you're not doing that. You're just thinking of yourself a lot and Him little. Right? We do this as well. But we, when we interact with Scripture, and when we find something we don't like in Scripture, we just pretend it's not there. Right? And so Scripture tends to only affirm us and never pushes against us. And we apologize for something that we don't like. Right? We, we explain it away. We just kind of let Scripture craft around us, build around us a perspective that agrees with us. Which ultimately means we begin to shape God into our image instead of ourselves into God's image. Right? Because he, he doesn't come against us, right? Because we, we ignore the Scripture right? where it would, would say, hey, what you're doing is sin, or what you're doing is not pleasing to God, or it's wrong. We, we want to stay away from those things. And so now all of a sudden God just seems to, man, He really likes me, but I just have it right. And He agrees with almost everything I think and say and do. God's on my team and on my side. And sh- shockingly, He's also that way for you and for you. And for them, and for, right, and all of a sudden now, God is in our image rather than the fact that God has told us who He is. He is big, and He is glorious, and He is other than. Listen, my kids love to wrestle, all of them, and they like to try to fight me, and they like to win. And so Janner will come by and like you know kick me and go, "You dead, right?" Or um, you know, they'll, they'll hold me down for a second, and they're like, we win, right? And, and in that moment, there's a sense of, like, they can um, suspend reality a little bit and kind of believe they're winning. But here's the thing. When we go camping, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and a coyote's howling, they're really glad for me to be dead, right? Like, they're, they're, they're glad at that moment they didn't win, that, that there's someone bigger and stronger than them there. Or when something is startling or scary to them, they're glad to stand behind my legs. They're grateful for that. And then they'll still try to fight, right? Like, we, we do this with God. Like, that we want to wrestle control and say, hey, God, I've got it. I'm doing a really good job with my life. And then when we wreck the ship, we're like, hey, why don't you take the will again? And, and he's saying, like, big. Like, you, you need me. When we begin to see God rightly, as big and as other, you get to rest. You get to trust. And you get to depend. Like, there is comfort in it. So, in the tent at 2 o'clock on a camping trip, my kids can sleep well, knowing they're not responsible for what's happening out there. Someone else is. And they can trust me. Right? And I'm not God. How much more can we trust that when the circumstances of life are terrifying or scary, that God is good, that He sees us, and we can rest in that, we can be comforted by that. And if a, if a child can be comforted by their fallible parent, 
who has sinned against them, how much more can we be satisfied and trusting and comforted and at peace and at ease with the God of the universe who is clearly not like us, who is completely capable and creation celebrates His name. Like it is meant to call us into peace and rest, comfort. We celebrate that God is big and other than. So, God is big and He's other than. But the author of Ecclesiastes would also tell us that He's distant. The church, would we be reminded this morning, He's not. He's not distant. Yes, He's in the heavens and we're here, but He has left the heavens. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's why we have celebrated the Advent season, because He has come. Right? He's come to be with His people, to take us back to the Father, to restore relationship with a sinful, rebellious people, to make us sons and daughters of the King once again, until He splits the sky to come for us once and for all. Right? And we will feast and celebrate and worship and be with Him forever. He is not far off. He has revealed Himself to us. Before we were in Ecclesiastes, we were preaching through Colossians. Remember Colossians chapter 1. As it's talking of Jesus here, would we hear this again? Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. God is not distant. He has revealed Himself. He has made Himself visible. He is the firstborn of all creation. For in by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, you forget who you are here, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This is the one who is in our proverbial tent with us. Who has left heaven. He is not distant. He has suffered and walked and lived and understands and has substituted Himself in our place to make us right with God the Father. So that we can be called sons and daughters. That we can be known and accepted and a part of the family, loved and liked by this God who is big and other than us. In John 14, when the disciples are freaking out, trying to figure out why is, like, why, where is Jesus going, what's going on, He comforts them by saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back. And not only that, I've left you the Spirit, and you have access to me through prayer, and you have one another. Like He's given us these same things as well, that God has revealed Himself to us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, through His Word and His God breathed through His church, which has moved this message for over 2,000 years now to the outermost parts of the world. Through His Spirit, which is God within us, sealing us until all the promises of God are found and our faith has become sight. God is not distant. He is near. 
so, it means he has also ripped the veil. And the reason that we don't necessarily guard our steps when we go to the house of God is in Matthew 27, at Jesus' crucifixion, the veil was ripped. The divide between sacred, right, the holy, and the common was broken. We walk with God in all that we do. Right? He's not housed somewhere. It's been broken, and the veil's been torn, and we have access to Him. So we can be comforted by that. And so here's where we'll end this morning. God is big, and He is other than, and we need that perspective. But He's not distant. He has revealed Himself in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we then, church, have been invited into a cosmic story that is eternal and everlasting. Whatever feeble attempts I could have had at being great and being remembered, I would have been like the king in the end of chapter 4, forgotten. Regardless. And yet we've been invited into a story that has no end. Because it's God, and it will last forever. It's a far grander, far greater story to play, and you have been given a role, because we're a kingdom of priests. And for those who are sealed and called by Jesus, who would see Him and trust Him and follow Him as their shepherd, we are a kingdom of priests. And you are currently still breathing, because you can point to Jesus and trust Him and glorify Him and honor Him, and you have a role and a part to play. In the current mess of the world that we live in. That He knit you together and created you to live in this place, in this time, for His sake and for His glory. To find comfort and trust and dependence in Him. To be one who would look to others and say, listen, I know where, well, I know where there's food. I, I found it and I have feasted and I didn't have to pay for it because He is glorious and He is good. And that we would one day have Him say to us, whether your role was insignificant seemingly in this life and no one knew your name, or whether yours was great and a lot of people knew your name, all we really need is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. As a business owner, as a mom, as a husband, as a student, right? Like whatever it is that your job is, whatever it is that your role in life, whatever it is your relationships are, that God would say of us, well done, good and faithful servant, you sought me, knew me, trusted me, were comforted by me, depended upon me, cried out, help. And you found that the vapor, right, wasn't vapor, it was held in Jesus. And He is sufficient and enough for us. The reason the word fool happens so much here in these first seven verses is the fool says there is no God. The fool can act religious. The fool can do those things, right? But the fool says there is no God. Because in the begin, right, the beginning of wisdom is this, is the fear of the Lord. It's trusting and knowing Him and believing that He is doing something, is knitting something together that is beautiful even in this messed up world that we have. And so it means that the church will be a mixture, right? Because we don't know everyone's heart. So there will be those here who will speak grandiose words and it will be pointing to Jesus. They'll be here those who might speak grandiose words and be pointing to themselves. We need discernment, right? That's why we guard our steps when we come near to the house of God. 
So we come with respect, with reverence, with awe, seeing rightly a big God who is not distant and who's invited us to know Him and to trust Him and to follow Him as Father, as Rescuer, as Good. Don't be religious in a vain way for your own good. Meet Jesus. Right? He is sufficient in all that we need. He can be known by God and know God. Right? Ecclesiastes is going to continue over the next several chapters to just peel our fingers off of other nooks and crannies of life. Right? Stay in the journey. I know it's, it's, it can be painful, but it's worth it in the end. All right, let me pray for it. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you're willing um, to leave us with messages that are hard, um, that, are, that are painful. God, because they take our fingers off of lesser things in order to give us you. And this morning, Lord, we would just ask that if we um, find any sense of vows or boasting in our religious um, behavior, God, that we would repent of that today. That we would not find hope in our religious story, but we would find hope in Jesus. That you are what we need. You are sufficient. And so whether our past is of being a fool and being foolish and being opposed to you in grandiose ways, Lord, that you rescue and you redeem. And God, if our past is of being really religious but being far from you, God, that you redeem. And everything in between. How we desperately want you. Thank you that you're not distant. Lord, this morning, for those who in their heart or in their mind feel that you are, God, would you just minister to them? Would you speak to them again? You are Emmanuel, God, with us. Would you be pleased by our response and our worship and our life this week? In Jesus' name, amen.